Welcome to another edition of What If, and this is a very special mm. one, isn't it? It yeah. really is. You're very excited about this. I'm, I'm very excited about this, but you're I'm beyond, you're freaking out a beyond bit. excited because the world's greatest living explorer, Serrano finds us, mm-hmm. and has written a book about my hero, mm-hmm. Serrano Shackleton. Yeah. Why do you like Shackleton? I've always, always loved him from when I was a little girl, from when I was about six, and I read his story, and it always resonated with me, and I just thought, wow, what a hero. And when all the odds are stacked against you, mm-hmm. you can still get there a bit like yourself, Sir Ranulph, you're like that. Is it right that you were born four months after your dad was killed? Is that right? That's correct. So mm-hmm. you obviously never knew your father. You had to get... no. But I was brought up on stories about him. I was going to say. And when I joined the regiment, there were people that remembered him. Oh, so yeah. they could tell you about him. 18 years later. Wow, so they were able to tell you about him. Gosh, you wonder, you know, because all obviously we talk about what if and things like what if this had happened. You Do, do you sometimes wonder what if... You'd come back and you'd ha- you'd been able to have a relationship with them, be able to... Yeah. What a difference it would have made, did you know? I don't, but I do know that um, when I am tempted to give up on an expedition, when we choose people, we choose so they won't give up. Their motivation is so strong. And we found out of 800 people when we wanted two people, out of 800, we found the ones with a faith got through and through the tests and the SAS, we made them all join the territorial SAS if they applied for the expedition. Yeah. If they got through and they had a faith, that would keep them going. Well, I was brought up in South Africa with a faith, but it's not strong enough to deal with things like crutch rot. Indeed, yes. And, and therefore, I have something else to answer your question, which is I imagine my dad and my granddad Although I never met them, Mum told me about them. They are there beside me in Antarctica or the Arctic. And I don't want to let them down, make make them ashamed of me Mm. by being the first to give up. So I keep going, but I am wanting to give up. So when you arrive in the tent completely knackered at night, you're looking around, you know, at the others, hoping one of them has broken his leg, then you won't be the first to give up. Yeah. (laughs) So Dad has been the sort of inspiration. Yes, yeah. mm. he makes you makes you go. And you mentioned South Africa because you were taken there as a, a kid and stayed there watching you were about twelve, I guess you must have been. And then yeah, you when came I came back. back, when I came back, uh, yeah. I was about twelve and she was about nine. Jenny, God, yes, your future wife as would be. Now tell me about that because that must have been quite strange to go from South Africa, where I would imagine you would have quite a lot of freedom to come to the UK where it was a completely different culture. Totally. And there you are landing from a different country. That must have been really quite difficult, actually. To well, when my South African granny died and mum, who, you know, was English and dad had been killed, she, mum, buried granny and told my three older sisters and me that we would be going to England and, uh, you know, I was one when I'd left, so it didn't mean much to me. Mm. And she said, and also, uh, you lot are going to have to learn to speak proper. <laughs> it's it always your ambition to go into the into the army? Is that always the thing that you That particular to regiment. Yeah. Yeah, not the army per se. Mm. So I did get into the regiment, but I not from Sandhurst College. 
so that people who'd been there would get to colonel, which is my aim. Mm -hmm. There's only one commanding officer, you know, the pyramid sort of mm -hmm. thing. At a certain stage, I had to accept, but not until I was about 19 did I accept the fact that I would never get it. So when I got married, my father-in-law had taken against me because when I was 16, she was 13, mm -hmm. and he didn't like that. And uh, he made her a ward of court, so that he not legally allowed to see me. And he told my mum that, you know, that I would be sued and all that. He rang up the colonel of my regiment in Germany. I have to say, sadly, now that my daughter is 15, I totally agreed with him. Right, mm -hmm. so you can understand was where he was coming from. Yeah, too late. It's, fun. Yeah. 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 it's a big age gap at that age, but I guess now older. And also, you were childhood sweethearts and total soulmates, weren't you? You and your first wife, you were. That's right. I mean, we did really... carry on seeing each other, but only very secretly, you know. Yeah. And we didn't marry until she was 21 and I was mm. 24. But she came up with all these ideas of these expeditions, and just one of them would apply to the Shackleton critique, critical people about Shackleton. Uh, in my opinion, he did get a plan to cross Antarctica before anybody else, which would have worked. Because lots of people say it wouldn't, but you've proved that it would, that it absolutely would. He, he, he would have done it, and if anybody was going to do it, it would have been him. That's right, that's right. The only thing that he did get debts and we learnt from that never to pay anybody. Right. But your your Jenny was a genius at drumming up money and at getting, you know, investors and getting people and the press interested. She was fantastic at that, wasn't she? Not only that, but the plan which the Norwegians had never managed to do, they'd broken all the other polar records. We don't call them rival, we call them enemy. Oh, okay. Ooh. Norwegians. Yeah, they, they did. Uh, they get had first. not. They tried so hard I to know. do the first uh, circumpolar uh, journey around Earth without flying one meter of the fifty-two thousand miles. She reckoned it would take three years with luck, or if we didn't quite make the Arctic in time for the summer, it might it might take five years. The planning and getting nineteen hundred sponsors took us in the SAS barracks seven years' work without pay. So we had to make a living in pubs on weekends, but drumming up support. And the two people that came with us were selected out of 800. Seven years to plan and organise, three years to do just one expedition. And up front, when she thought of it, the first journey around Earth vertically, she sent me to a library to find out the best route, which turned out to be zero, which starts at Greenwich, zero down to the South Pole, and then 180 on the other side, and then over the top and back to Greenwich. It was all her planning, and she learnt to be a top scientist. She got the, uh, the first woman ever to get the Polar Medal from the Queen, the first woman to be accepted into the all-male Arctic club. And four months ago, the Foreign Office named a huge mountain in Antarctica after her. And as a result of the patron, Prince Charles, 
one year in the 70s when we asked him to be a patron of another expedition and he found out what it was. He said, and who are we raising money for? I said, sir, we don't, that's not part of an expedition. Oh dear, I thought we were doing stuff for charity. I can't be patron if, if we're not raising money. And so I said, who for? I'll let you know. And the, uh, the first one was multiple sclerosis. And by the time we did the last expedition, we were up to 19.8 million. Wow. Um, for multiple sclerosis. Marie Curie, mm-hmm. breakthrough breast cancer. That was when Dyson sponsored us. Oh, and the British Heart Foundation. Yeah. That's an incredible amount of money. That's extraordinary. So science and charity yeah. are the side effects of the expeditions. Yeah. And that expedition around the world, she plotted. She sent me to the, a library. I looked and saw a place called Antarctica got in the way <laughs> and, and the Arctic. Anyway, nobody had done the crossing complete. So I went home, as you would, and I told Ginny that it was a stupid idea. Um, normally they weren't stupid ideas, but anyway, she got quite <laughs> unpleasant. So I went back to the library and basically... Zero was the answer. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. The things that you've done, the records that you've broken, are, are, are just just incredible. They really are. And, good. But, and there's, a, there's a very naughty side. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, tell me, when you, were, when you were very young, you did get into trouble. Um, and it was all to do with a piglet, a greased piglet. Do you remember that? That, yeah, that was, I, that was I, can't, I can't mention his name, my colleague. No, no, no his no, name no. shall never be mentioned. Yes. Right. We didn't <laughs> steal the piglet from the farmer, we've just borrowed it at night. And the tank grease, which we greased it with, OMD mm-hmm. 100, can be washed off and not harmful. Good, good so to I have know. to say that. Yes. But because we hadn't got to Sandhurst College and we went to Mons, which is a sort of secondary place, we thought when they had their annual ball with the women wearing long dresses <laughs> and the men in black tie, so we thought we'd get there at night to the Santos Camberley College and put the piglet through the window when they were all dancing <laughs> from the, the shrubs outside. And Yeah? The screaming that went on, you know, you <laughs> get grease all over the bottom of your dress and this piglet squealing around. Anyway, somebody inside there must have caught the piglet and thrown it back through the window. So we got it again. Oh, right. And Thank my, goodness it was OK. <laughs> somehow or other, my mum heard about this. Oh. I was probably 19 back then. We were being trained for tank driving and that in Lulworth. And she said, this is stealing. You will get it back. So at night, we put the piglet back with his mum. Oh, uh, good. And never met the farmer. He was, he was none the wiser. Well, it was a successful raid. It was a very successful <laughs> raid. One of, one of, one of many. Oh, uh, I want to hear about the blowing up of a dam. That yes, you now, like. you know how most people, if you didn't like something, you might go to your, maybe write a letter to your MP or, mm. or, or, or you, would, you would write an indignant letter to the Times because uh, you didn't like this, this concrete dam. You thought, no, I like this. I'm, I'm not having it. It was in a place called Castle Coombe. Yeah. That's what it was called, uh, down in the southwest. And a friend of mine, when I was on leave in the UK from the army, said that the dreadful thing what was happening 
was this lovely village called Kasukum had been voted Britain's prettiest village and it was being ruined by 20th century Fox making a film called Doolittle. Oh, Dr. Doctor Doolittle. Doctor Doolittle. Oh. Is that the one with Rex Harrison that was in it, the original yes, one? Yeah. Right, right. So he decided what we would do would get the public to hear about it. Right. By blowing up the dam, which had made a lake for them out of this trout stream. Okay. Um, and <laughs> ruining quite, the village. Quite drastic too. And, he, and we would blow it up the night before the film started. Right. And get somebody to tell the Daily Mirror and say that it, someone could take photographs of it, otherwise it, you know, blowing up, nobody took photos, it wouldn't mm. work. Mm. Anyway, to cut a long story short, the police got to hear about it before it happened and surrounded the village. But on the route to that, they put Alsatian dogs around the place because they didn't know when the plan was going to take place. But my friend heard about that. He, therefore, hired eight Alsatian bitches. Right. And put uh, them upwind of the dam on the night. Very So the, the, the Alsatians would smell them. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, everything went wrong. Everybody was caught. I was not caught. I, I'd been doing another army course on how to escape from dogs by night. My demolition course had taught me that you must blow up, if you're a Brit uh, SAS person, mm -hmm. you must blow up as much as possible with as little as possible that you've got to carry. Okay. And I was quite good at this, and therefore I had quite a lot left over at the end of each evening of the training course. Mm. Uh, detonators and things, you know. So I put them in the back of the car. And a month or two later, when this was all happening, the car was pretty much stuffed with quite nasty stuff. So I thought, why not use it for this public-spirited gesture? But they didn't catch me, but they caught the car numbers. I ended up in Chippenham Jail. I was on police probation for six months. I was thrown out of the SAS oh. back to my own regiment in Germany. That, is that the one you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's the that's, one I'm talking about. I mean, are, 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 are there more? <laughs> <laughs> are there I'm not more telling you anything say? you don't uh, got wind of already. <laughs> but, I mean, explanation, all of that, obviously that's your calling. But what if you had been cast as James Bond? Because surely... Oh, the James surely, Bond thing. Mm. No, that was nothing to do with me. That was... I got married to Ginny, but I had nowhere where we could live. And she had a bothy free from the Scottish National Trust. Right. Loch Marie. Beautiful. Kinlochorn. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so I could go and live with my new wife up there and try and work out if I could write a book or something, you know, something. And then a postman arrived, which is quite a rare thing, at this bothy. Loch Marie's got no buildings otherwise on that bank. And uh, it was from a thing called the William Morris Agency. Yes, they, they're rather huge. They're for actors and things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like all the A-list actors ever. <laughs> and, and there was a man called Cubby Broccoli. Uh -huh. And he had a director called Guy Hamilton. And they were looking, because George Lazenby, who had been James Bond, was charging too much for the next Bond, Old Broccoli got a bit fed up and said, what we'll do is we'll find a Bond type of person who is not going to ask for too much money because they don't act. They don't know about acting. So they got 200 of them and sent out stuff. I arrived at this post thing. 
and they get rid of people bit by bit out of 200. Mm. And then I heard I was in the last six. <gasps> and I couldn't believe it. So I began to think, well, <laughs> so I started looking in the mirror and with Shakespeare, you know, uh, like what an actor does, <laughs> and got into the last six. And I can remember Broccoli and Hamilton in this hotel room. And the night before, I looked into a mirror and I'd to be or what not to be and all that, and learned how to smile properly and got into this room and the broccoli man who was smoking a cigar said over his shoulder, didn't even say hello to me, you know, said, what you got this one for? Look at his hands, they're like a farmer's hands. So that was it. But I got the expedition, which is what I set out for. You mean, we need to talk about your fingers. Yes, Rosie's fascinated. I'm fascinated because I cannot understand how a person can saw off the fingertips. When the accident happened, it was a solo expedition in the Arctic. And I hate solo expeditions. One thing is, you know, when there's two of you or more, you can get rid of all your pain and your mental thing by hating them. <laughs> and then you get into the tent at night and the pain goes away. I think that the solo expedition, although Mike's tried to give me all the pills that he normally takes and told me when to take them, I made a bad mistake. Minus 50, sledge fell in, 10 foot down into the water, mm. dark, full moon, breaking up all the ice, the tide. I realised I was going to die very quickly if I couldn't get the sledge out of the water because as it fell in, I hit the quick release but meant that a tent and all the life-saving equipment was no longer fixed to me. And there it was, and it was gradually sinking. There was air inside the ration bags and so on, but it was gradually sinking. Blocks of ice were falling in on top of it. So I had to get it out, and I used one hand to put it out. I managed to get 10 feet back up onto the edge of the ice flow mm -hmm. from which I'd fallen and quickly got out of it. Everything's lashed down. My hands were so gone, this one completely that I'd used, and this one going, that I couldn't undo the lashes. So I cut the lashes, got tent, little tent, sleeping bag, matches in the tin, cooker, and that's about it. What you do is you start your cooker by pumping petrol onto the plate, and then you light the plate. Well, I got, it, I got the tent half up, but then it was too much. But the wind was protected in the, you know, the mucky tent. So I, I used my hand there to hold the thing. Mm. And the other one I put in my mouth. And then I pumped. Like I smelt petrol, so I lit it. But I, I'd done too much petrol. not, And it caught the inner of the tent. So I had to use the sleeping bag to put the fire out inside this tent asphyxiating and so all the feathers were everywhere it's the worst moment of my life really and to cut a long story short i eventually got back to the mainland and managed to get a ski plane to come in from 600 miles away a very amazing uh russ bombrier is an engine chief a good pilot and uh, i got back to a hospital in canada ppp insurance uh, said they would not pay for the amputations you can see how much was dead. So, so it's your, th that much your left hand, okay. And that one there. So it's your, all your there. fingertips, basically, on your left hand. Yeah, your thumb. But, but it was actually a bit more than that because okay. it's either dead or alive, but there's semi-dead in between. Oh, lovely. And that semi-dead is going to be made into the new 
ends to the shortened fingers. Right. You've done so much in your life. I mean, that... Remember we were talking about the, the heart attack and all of that? Yes. Yeah. You had a heart attack or heart surgery? No, well, I, I had one major heart attack. My wife was still alive. My late wife was still alive. Mm-hmm. So it must have been about 2003. Mm-hmm. I was on a Bristol aeroplane about to take off to give a lecture in Edinburgh. And apparently, I, I don't remember it, and I had no pain. I collapsed just before the aeroplane took off. The pilot told the fire engine with the first responding crew who ran from the fire engine onto the aeroplane within four or five minutes of me completely collapsing and the stewardess saying he's got a head of heart attack. So I was very lucky. My timing was very mm. good. I'd had no problems of any sort, no angina, nothing. So I don't explain it. I got woken up three days and nights later by Ginny, who'd been sitting by the bedside, saying, Ran, you had a heart attack three days ago. I said, don't remember it. Anyway, about three and a half months later, we were due to, for the British Heart Foundation, run 7 by 7 by 7 sponsored by British Airways and Land Rover. So this was seven marathons on seven continents in seven days? Consecutive days. I, I, I mean, that's just... Mental. That is bonkers, frankly. Well, Ginny said, you, you, Ran, you are not doing that marathon with Mike Stroud. I said, well, can we check with the doctor who did it, Angelini, the heart surgeon? Mm-hmm. This was a B- few months before. NHS, but... Bristol Royal, three and a half months before. So Ginny said, well, we'll go and see him, see what he has to say, knowing that he, the doctor would not yeah. allow it mm. or put it off for a year or something. Putting it off when you've got all the sponsorship and the police in Argentina ready to stop traffic and, you know, taking all the planning... And so we go to the doctor, Angelini, Ginny and me, and she says, and he wants to run a marathon. Well, seven. Seven <laughs> marathons. Yeah. And seven All continents <laughs> well, well, in that's seven right. days. Yeah, but he said, look, I have done what I've done to your husband to, uh, to sew him up. You know, they cut you open and mm. say you are. I've still got the wire inside there. Yeah, so your husband, I've done it to three other, his that double bypass. Mm-hmm. to 3,000 other people, but none of them have ever asked if they can run a marathon three months later, so I, <laughs> I can't give an opinion, mm. an honest opinion. I have no experience, but he must not ever exceed 130 beats. Can we talk Ernest Shackleton? Because your book on Ernest Shackleton is That's It, Nobody Else Has to Do Another Book. I thought I'd read everything there is to know because as Rosie will know, I'm obsessed. Obsessed. Obsessed by Ernest Shackleton. Uh And I learned so much from this. And the thing about it was, you've been there. You know, you know, you you would know what was going on in his head. You would know all of the things he had to face. You would know all of the challenges and the setbacks. So we get this absolutely unique perspective. It's, It's just so interesting to read. Yeah, in in the 70s, we did the first big Antarctic expedition with two other people, and we had no polar orbiting satellites. So there was no GPS. So there was no sat-nav or you're sat alone. phone. Yeah. We were using, uh, to know where we were, the same theodolite sextant as Shackleton and Scott and Amundsen. We were using the same method of 
without features, it's all white, you know, for 2,000 miles plus, we were using one watch on Greenwich time, the other watch on local time. And then you look to see where the sun is and you very quickly know exactly within five degrees where to move. And if you put the other two, there were two others, Ollie and Charlie and myself, put them a mile between each person and you look back at the end of the hour and take a back bearing, you can see if you're wrong, you've been wrong. So that you'll go, you'll make the mistake the other way on the next hour and compensate. Now that sounds very ancient, but that was the only way of doing it. So that's di direction and location. Yeah, because you always wonder what it is about Shackleton. Now. Yeah, I, I I know that you love him. So he went but couldn't complete the, his mission. No, right? he couldn't. He got the the endurance got trapped in the ice. That's what it was. And then he had to get his men safe. He had to get them back, and he managed. God knows how he managed. How did he manage to get to Elephant Island, and then to South Georgia, and then to go and the, the mountains where nobody knew what it was like, and uh, and then back? It's just the, the, the suffering that all those men went through is just unbelievable. Mm. We've not suffered in wet boats. We've suffered all the icy problems and falling in every now and again, but not in a boat in huge waters with low temperatures uh, for that amount of time. Shackleton kept them going, kept them cheerful as you, you know, in the most dreadful circumstances. So his failure to succeed in what he wanted to do to cross Antarctica because his ship sunk before he set out was completely redeemed by his ability to keep everybody alive. I can't think of anyone else who would have been able to do that. No, it's that it's the remarkable powers of, of leadership, isn't it? That even to this day resonates to this day. You know, people study him and, and, and use what his techniques, if you like. I don't know whether with him, I think with him it was more instinctive, don't you? That he, that was just what he was like. Yeah, it, it must have been DNA. Yeah. And another incredible guy, in great heat, who was an Anglo-Irishman like Shackleton, at the same time was Lawrence of Arabia. Of course. So you've got two Anglo-Irish at the same time, one in great heat and one in great cold, becoming famous in their own region of horror. It's remarkable, mm. absolutely remarkable. It, it really is. And he, I don't know, I just, I, I just find it absolutely fascinating. I was very lucky that I went, you know, you were talking about the Falklands and we went from Argentina in a boat, but we did it in style. Do you know what I mean? We did it properly, <laughs> where you were warm and cosy and you got hot chocolate and things like that. <laughs> um, I did go to Deception Island and Rosie, I did go in the water, didn't I? Yeah, there's a video. I did go in the water at yeah. Deception Island and it was freezing, obviously, but it had to be done. My husband didn't, but I did. <laughs> he said, oh, I had to take a photo of you. That's why I didn't do it. But we followed that journey and went to Elephant Island. Couldn't land in Elephant Island. They did, but we couldn't because it was too dangerous. And then we went to South Georgia and it was... Why is it dangerous? Why is it... Scary? Well, you why just you, you, you couldn't land because of the... The, the sea was so rough. Uh. But I wasn't like them fighting for my life. You know, I was not grand old time. I was absolutely fine. But you they, got close enough to imagine. Yes. 
Oh yes, I got so close to imagine what it must have been like. But I don't think you can. You know, you can watch. You, that's why the book is so good because it really, it, it's so descriptive, and you really do feel that you you're there. You know, you get it. You understand because yeah, you've it, been through it. It, it that's made me relive. Yeah really nasty memories and that I thought what he went through, what his men went through was just not repeated anywhere in the cold. Of course, and we know now, it's that thing of we know that they were okay. Of course we do. We know that they were all saved. But while they were going through that, you know, while the ones he left behind were on Elephant Island for all that time, they didn't know. They didn't know they were going to be all right. No, th mm. th he yeah, that's didn't know. the thing that, and, really... and, and he knew all the time that if he failed and if it, he would be killing all those people as well, they would mm. die slowly. No, his his mind must have been able to change gear from when it would, like any human being, become full of desperation and disaster. He would be able to fight the wimpish voice in his head, and in a lesser way, that's what we do when we're trying to break starvation and not to sit in the tent when the blizzard blows. Yeah. Get I out there. Whatever the blizzard is, just get out there and do the mileage. See, I don't know how you, I don't know what... I mean, you said, it was really interesting what you said about your dad, wasn't it, mm. The fact that it was your, your father's voice in your head or, or, or his presence or him saying to you, get up, get on with it, and you don't want to let him down. No, that's right. That's amazing. And I didn't realise that what was happening was that at night an extra 2,000 calories was being used even though you were asleep. Your body is using the calories to fight off the cold. Oh. So that bit of mathematics, you know, was invisible sort of thing. But what Mike had done, Mike Stroud with me, was he used his extra knowledge whether it was from our Auschwitz experiments or not. And one thing that he definitely did, which I blamed him for get, causing me a maximum heart attack later, was he stuffed our rations with over 60% fat for 90 days because you get much more calorie for less weight from fat oh. than you do from protein or carbohydrate. Mm. And to begin with, it's pretty disgusting, but when you start getting hungry, then it becomes good. <laughs> and the only thing which really tasted good and wasn't factory made was the flapjack, the daily flapjack, handmade. And in this tiny tent for three months solid, Mike would split the rations, put it in between these two people, me and him, put the flapjack. And I noticed after a bit that mine was always smaller than his. <laughs> And I thought, well, I ought to say, you know. Yeah. But you shouldn't say things like that. It can start bad relations. Mm. Yeah. So you keep it in your head. Yeah. But, but after, after 80 days, I couldn't. I, so I said, Mike, don't you think every other day that I could choose which flapjack? And he said, yes, of course. So I could have actually said it quite a lot earlier. <laughs> and then 10 days after that, as they sat, because you leave your chocolate and your flapjack to last Otherwise, the other guy can be eating his flapjack and chocolate and you've eaten yours. At so oh. you, you wait to be last thing and then you eat them together. And, and even then, when I'd chosen it, it still seemed smaller. I think real hunger makes you nasty. 
Mm. No, very much. I was hungry. So. I get, I get very angry. I know. I mean, obviously not the same thing at yeah. all. <laughs> but you <laughs> do. To an expedition, but I. I know. Yeah. He said in a pub in London, we were talking about the next Canadian Arctic expedition, and he said, Ryan, you know, in the Soviet, we did one from Russia, the Soviet Union one. I really hated you. Oh. I really hated you. Polar bears, whether they're Russian or Canadian, only attack the rear person. Oh. There can be six of you, the rear person. So we give the gun, the Clint Eastwood pistol, which is right here, not on the sledge, yeah. to the rear person. And as I'm the leader, I don't choose to go at the back. It's one of the perks of not being eaten sort of thing. <laughs> and so Mike, if there's only two of you, goes at the back. So he carries the pistol, three eight special. And he said in the pub... You know, Ryan, I hated you so much, I actually spent a lot of time planning where I would shoot you. And it would be near some open water stretch so that I can... Oh, he really thought about it. So that if Scotland Yard came looking, there'd be no body. Wow. And we were in the pub and we laughed about it. I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> Two and a half years later in the Canadian Arctic, we were back struggling and he was at the back with a pistol behind <gasps> me. Oh. And I remembered the pub. Mm. That wasn't funny. <laughs> No, that's not. That's not at all. But what is much worse is, as I say, to go on an expedition which is solo, because mm. then you've got nobody to hate. Yeah. Apart from yourself. Yeah, which is not instructive. <laughs> no, which is, which is not at all in any way healthy. The book is fantastic. It really is. It's just called Shackleton, because that's all we have to call it. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for... It was a, an absolute joy to read it. Like I say, I thought, you know, being a Shackleton geek, I thought I knew everything about him. I absolutely didn't. It's a, you know, it's it's a unique insight. It's just, it's just brilliant. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So at the end of each episode, we get our guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. Yeah. We'll start with fail. What do you think? What, yeah. Yeah. To get rid of my phobia of vertigo. Ooh. How can you have vertigo if you climbed Mount Everest? I I climbed Everest three times. Yes. And on the first two got to within 300 metres in height of the summit. Didn't quite make it. Right. The third time I did it from the easy side. That's Nepal, not Tibet, Mm. which is just a walk really to the top. Or behave. And and that time, (laughs) that time uh, I was an OAP. You were, you're the oldest man to have climbed Everest, for goodness sake. I don't know about the oldest, but certainly the first OAP. Yeah. Mm. And I can remember the Daily Express said, well, it was dead easy for him. He had a free bus pass. <laughs> <laughs> Typical. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I would have thought I'd learnt vertigo from that. Uh-huh. No. You still you, if you, have it? you go and do it, you will find there are no drops or if you look over the edge, it's a it's a sort of white slope. Mm. Okay. Not what gives you vertigo, which is a, a right. dizzy drop, okay. like down there. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So my guide, who promised to make me stop vertigo, wonderful climber called Kenton Cool, he's unbelievable. Been up at least fourteen times up Everest. He said, "Ran, I can see why." It, we haven't done anything for your vertigo on Everest. But look, I can take you to the Alps much cheaper and teach you a thing or two. We will do a thing called the north face of the Eiger 
in um, I forget the name of the. But that's really that's really hard. I mean, that's not. It's six thousand foot sheer. Uh huh. And so he, he did that. And although it's been done by a Swiss monkey man in, I think, two and a half hours, it took us three days and nights camping in places like the Death, Death Bivouac. Yeah, as long as I could see Kenton and Ian, his number two, he taught me how to lose the fear, which I've always had, even at school, climbing buildings to put stuff on top. That was at night, you couldn't see down. Even in the SES, they, they, you must never close your eyes when you're parachuting for various good reasons. Mm. I, I would always close them because they can't see, you know, what you're doing with your eyes. <laughs> you get chucked out of the SES for behaving like that, but they never saw. Nowadays, if there's leaves in the gutter at home, put the ladder up, I'll hold the ladder and m my wife Louise can go up the top and remove the leaves from the gutters. So interesting. Wow. So interesting. Because... When Kenton or Ian went over a rock, I could no longer see them and just the rope. I, I forgot all the lessons. Basically, it's quite simple. Never look down, ever. And if you hear a church bell down in the village 6,000 feet below, don't think of the, the bell of the church. Change your mind. Make yourself think of something else like the next little hold, particularly if, if you've got bad fingers. <laughs> and don't ever think down that's even more difficult okay so just keep looking up and as long as i could see kenton or ian it went and i'd been cured got to the top and i realized a little bit later that it all came back when they weren't there ah so that would be that would be a failure that would be the fail mm -hmm. yeah. would be not conquering yes okay. vertigo and what about regret Regrets. I, I regret that it took us eight expeditions over 26 years, Ginny spoke good Arabic, to find the, the lost city of incense, Atlantis of the Sands. I read a book about it. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of our time and effort. And at the end of it all, the people who made the film of us finding it, they said they found it, the Americans, Los Angeles Times and all that sort of stuff. So we approached Ed Victor, our literary agent in London, who was American, and he did his best to put the facts right. That really regret that we spent all that time mm. and Ginny was so adamant that we would find it when I decided to give up after five goes. And um, then to find that the whole, even in Oman, you know, the Sultan of Oman, uh, they've got records. They asked me out there last year and I went to the lost city with ministers and the, the documents in Arabic sort of make out that although, yeah, their ex-army person, me, was looking in the places where he had been fighting previously, they didn't say that we, Jenny and I, had actually found the lost city. Mm. So that was a big regret, yeah. his history wasted and lost. That's not fair. No. That's not fair at all. That really isn't no. when you put in all, all that work and done that so, so what, much. What we admitted was that NASA had been persuaded by them to photograph the deserts from right. 170K. But all they found was areas where it wasn't. <gasps> right. Yeah. I understand. Okay. Which is a learning as well. Yeah, it is. Uh -huh. And what about your biggest win? Mm, so win. many. Yeah. So many wins. Well, in, in my whole life, yeah. um, having met two wonderful wives. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, that's a good one. Mm. 
through luck. That's what, you know, do, do you meet somebody or, or, or not? Yeah. And coming from South Africa, uh, the next door neighbor, you know, had, had this daughter. She could have set, mum could have settled anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It was meant what to if? be. It was. That's a real what, a if. what, what if? if. if your if your mum hadn't taken you there, you wouldn't have met your Ginny. <laughs> it's amazing, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely amazing. That's a lovely, a lovely mm. win. We like that. What a joy to talk to you. Thank you oh. so much. We could talk for days, well, days I'm, on end. I'm really glad that you liked Shackleton. I loved yeah. it. Loved that, it. That's great. Absolutely loved it. It was, and I mean, I loved your book about Scott, but this is very special. Very special. Thank you so much. Thank you. Not at all. Oh. <laughs>